since worship is commanded by God and toward God, he reserves the right to dictate exactly how we are to worship him. And for the believer, that day of worship, therefore, is truly a delight. This sermon concludes our examination of the particulars of true worship according to the dictates of God's holy word, the Holy Scriptures. Our World Covenant reading coming from Isaiah and chapter 58. Isaiah and chapter 58, the entirety of the text, 14 verses. Isaiah chapter 58, beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. As God contrasts between right and wrong worship. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, Cry aloud, spare not. Lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sin. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and forsake not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? Behold, in the day of your fast ye find pleasure and exact all your labors. Behold, ye fast for strife and debate, and to smite with the fist of wickedness. Ye shall not fast as ye do this day to make your voice to be heard on high. Is it such a fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his fed as is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke. Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seest the naked, that thou coverest him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh, then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy reward. Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. If thou take away from the midst of thee the yoke, the putting forth of the finger, and speaking vanity, and if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry, and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity, and thy darkness be as the noonday. And the Lord shall guide thee continually, and satisfy thy soul in drought, and make fat thy bones." And thou shalt be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. And they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt rise up the foundations of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, and shall honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Paul writing to Timothy, First Timothy in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, 
as Paul counsels Timothy to keep order in the church. By the same spirit, so does Paul write. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now, worship is part of the human existence. And while it takes many forms, especially in our modern world where apostasy and individual spiritualism runs rampant, it is nevertheless an essential component of man's quest for purpose. Man's quest for purpose usually finds itself in its worship. The fact is this. Everyone worships someone or something. There's no such thing as a man who doesn't worship. A variety, however, of worship forms exist. They take the form of either ritual or ideology or simply a focus on self-expression. But all of these things are worship. Sometimes a worship expression defines itself as a personal quest to connect with a higher power like nirvana or finding oneself. At other times, humanistic worship seeks to become one with Mother Earth or in extreme cases, it expresses itself in worshiping the Earth as in pantheism the ecology movement perhaps, or even the global warming panic or save the whale movement. These are all forms of of passive worship, the worship of nature in a passive way. All of these forms of worship where God has created an image of man's idea are not acceptable to God and yet they are forms of worship. Anti-Christian worship, of course, but nevertheless forms of worship. None of them, however, None of them are to be considered biblical, nor are they to be regarded as legitimate by the creator of the universe. In the eyes of God, they are blasphemous and damnable. All worship that does not conform itself to scripture, that does not have God, the creator, in the face of Jesus Christ as the object of worship, is blasphemy and it is damnable. Jesus told the woman at the well, that the true worshipers must worship God in spirit and in truth. Notice John 4, 23 and 4. He says, but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers, notice he's very careful when he says the true worshipers as opposed to those who just worship anything, but the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit And they that worship him must, notice the emphasis, they must worship him in spirit and in truth. So what did he mean? What does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? God tells us exactly what he means. In John 6.63, God defines his own terms. He defines what truth is and he defines what spirit is. He defines where to find them. Notice John 6.63. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. Notice, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. In his priestly prayer of John 17, Jesus then goes further to define what he means by truth and by implication where we are to find truth. Notice, speaking of the apostles and all that would believe as a result of their declaration of the gospel, 
Christ defines his terms in John 17, 17. Notice what he says. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So, the word is spirit, and the word is truth. So Jesus defines exactly what he means by spirit and truth when he tells the woman at the well, you are to worship me. If you're going to be a true worshiper, you have to worship me in both spirit and in truth, both referring to the word of God, the Holy Scriptures. So if you're going to worship God, it has to conform to the word of God, the the Scriptures. If you're going to worship God, it must conform to the Holy Scriptures. And so, true worshipers, if they are to have their worship acceptable before God, they must... Worship God according to the dictates of Holy Scripture. In other words, there can be no innovation nor principal focus other than God in the face of Jesus Christ and the dictates of His Word. Notice, no innovation. I found it interesting that on Calvin's deathbed, he told Beza who would come after him and all of those who would finally follow him after his death. He said, beware of one thing. Beware of innovation. Therefore, there can be no innovation, nor principal focus other than God through the Lord Jesus Christ and the dictates of his word. And this is called the regulative principle of worship. Simply stated, The regulative principle of worship states that the corporate worship of God is to be founded upon the specific directives of Scripture, either by commandment, direct implication, or by example. No innovation. According to Pastor Terry Johnson, he says, the regulative principle addresses what the church may do when it assembles. Churches are not free to do whatever they want to do. They must do what Scripture instructs and requires them to do. When the church gathers to worship, its worship is to be according to Scripture. Historically, a well-regulated service meant that Reformed Protestants knew pretty well what would happen in church each week. There would be few surprises. No one would be asked to do anything strange. Those leading the services wouldn't do anything embarrassing. The Word would be read, preached, sung, prayed, and the sacraments would be administered. No dog and pony shows, no pyrotechnics, no one rambling about. The service consisted of the serious application of the Word of God. This was good because members are required to be at services. Attendance is a duty of membership since members have to attend. They should only be required, and I love this part, they should only be required to do what God requires them to do. Not what the pastor requires them. Not what the theater requires them to do. Not the, not the music minister. But only what the scriptures, only what God requires them to do. Now the Westminster Standard in chapter 21 explains it this way. The light of nature showeth that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. Very clear. The Reverend Dr. Matthew McMahon further explains, 
he says, it should be seen as appropriate that at the house of God, it would be ordered by God's rules. It should be seen as appropriate that worship, that which shows reverence, piety, love, desire, and joy in God, be structured and ordered according to God's word and his biblical principles therein. Worship for the Christian should be an expression of God's heart back to God. We ought to reflect back to God how wonderful and most blessed he is. It is impossible to worship God by human invention. It is impossible to worship God by human ingenuity. It is impossible to worship God in an atmosphere that has not been structured and ordered by God and His Word. The integrity of the corporate worship, the worship of God, that true worship of God, was so important for the Apostle Paul that he begged Timothy to maintain that integrity by keeping order during the services. But if I tarry long, he says, that thou mayest know how thou ought to behave thyself in the house of God. I look at that from a Christocentric vantage point. Christ has tarried very long for over 2,000 years. He's tarrying. And what is happening in the churches? They're innovating here. They're innovating there. They're innovating there. They've forgotten what Paul says. If Christ tarries long, if the apostle tarries long, then you are not to innovate. You ought to know how to keep the order in the worship of God. Paul understood not only the importance of worship, but the deeper meaning of worship. The Reverend R.J. Rushdoony explains, he says, The Hebrew redemption was first celebrated in the Sabbath. The Christian Sabbath commemorated Christ's triumph over sin and death. And hence, it is celebrated on the day of resurrection, the first day of the week. To reject this day is to reject Christ's redemption and to seek salvation by another and inadmissible way. So it is painfully obvious that there were churches during the first century that were obviously out of order and who were very unaware that there was a divine code of conduct and order of worship to be maintained if there was going to be true worship acceptable by God. And such was the church at Corinth and possibly even some of the churches among the Galatian congregations. Order is necessary in both doctrine and practice, but also among the offices of church leadership and among those that attend the services of worship. Order is important. To be out of order means to be chaotic. God is not a God of chaos. God is not a God of confusion. God is a God of order, and he wants his worship to be orderly. That being said, there are certain principles which should be understood concerning worship. If the leadership of the church, any church that, for that matter, any church for that matter, if the leadership of the church is out of order, either in doctrine, practice, or in their individual or family lives, the entire congregation will be out of order. As the leadership goes, so goes the church. This holds true for every institution. In addition to this, if the entire congregation is out of order and the leadership does nothing to return them to orderly conduct while in worship assembly by exhortation, admonition, rebuke, training, then that leadership, even if it has everything else doctrinally in order, it's out of order. The leadership is to maintain order in their office, and order in that congregational assembly. And if they cannot do that, they should resign their commission. 
There's also an aspect of authority related to the Sabbath day, the New Testament Sabbath, the Lord's Day. As we've already seen, whenever we enter into the worship service on the New Testament Sabbath day, we must be recognizing God as the sovereign king who has called us into his courtroom to hear his judgments, his statutes, and his ordinances, to correct when we go astray, to admonish us when we're doing well. And by the declaration of his holy law, his holy word of truth, by the mouth of faithful ministers, the lawgiver, judge, and king is speaking to all of us. This is why it's so important to expound the scriptures, not to create things out of thin air as far as a message of sermonizing goes. We need to expound the scriptures. What is God telling us? Not what the pastor thinks or what the minister thinks, but what is God saying? One way we recognize God's sovereignty over us is that we attend his holy day fully prepared to be in his presence. Remember, where two or three are gathered together, there he is present. So one way that we recognize God's sovereignty over us is that we attend his holy day fully prepared to sit in the presence of God. God clearly expressed this. He wanted to tell his people how they were to approach him in what was called back then the solemn assembly. Ye shall keep my Sabbaths, Leviticus 19.30, and reverence my sanctuary, I am the Lord. Some other ways in which we declare his sovereignty over us is we come ready to hear. We come ready to hear the word. This includes praying corporately as his people, singing from his holy book, his songbook, the Psalms, support uh, his work by by the tithe, enjoying fellowship with one another, all of this is a component of worship. We're also admonished that we are to be mindful of one another by showing kindness, long-suffering, meekness, in a loving and comforting posture as commanded by the scriptures, encouraging one another, hearing one another in their difficulties, praying for one another. That's all part of worship. R.J. Rushton again observes, he says this, when God declares that his people are to keep the Sabbath day holy, three things are apparent. First, The rest of the Sabbath comes from the fact that covenant man is under authority. Second, the Sabbath is kept as a Sabbath to Jehovah thy God. Third, the Sabbath is holy unto the Lord. All three things show clearly the basic fact of the sovereignty and authority of God so that the Sabbath must set forth God's authority and sovereignty or else it is not truly a Sabbath. So when we come into the worship assembly, we have to realize that we are standing before the sovereign king of the universe. And that's what makes the Sabbath so glorious. And it's what makes the Sabbath a delight. Because he is our God and we are his people. And by obeying God's revealed will and the worship of His majesty under His authority, protection, and care, we can be comforted to know that He truly is our God and has our best interest in view. Now let's consider some of the most basic particulars of the Lord's Day worship. Number one, the central import of worship is not the Lord's Supper. I'm going to say that again because there's some who believe that that is the central portion of the worship. It is not the Lord's Supper. While it is one of the means of grace, one of the very important sacraments, it is not the central part of worship. It is not the means by which individuals are redeemed. It is not where grace is conferred, nor is it where faith is strengthened. The Lord's Supper does nothing of that sort. 
The centrality of the worship assembly is the preaching of the Word of God, the unpacking of the Word of God, the unfolding of the Word of God. That's the centrality because that's where faith is strengthened. That's where people are saved. That's where grace is given. The Apostle confirms this to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says this, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Notice what he's not saying. The Lord's Supper is the power of God. No, it's the preaching of the word, the preaching of the Christ of God, the preaching of the crucified Christ, the victorious Christ, the atoning Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1.21 and Titus 1.1 and following, notice, for that after that, in the wisdom of God, for after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Titus 1, one and following. Paul, the servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching. Not the Lord's Supper, through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God, our Savior. The centrality of the worship day is the preaching of the word of God. Throughout the first century church, the apostles went about preaching the kingdom of God. It was the preaching of the word that Christ had purposed to be the centerpiece of the gospel declaration and not the ritual of the Lord's Supper, as important as that was. It is during the exercise of preaching that the congregation is admonished, rebuked, encouraged, strengthened, comforted, and commissioned both in making their calling and election sure and they're taught how to take dominion in the advancement of the kingdom of God. And it is through the preaching of the word of God that God speaks through his ministers by his word to the people of promise. And it is through the preaching of the word of God that faith is matured and those who are weak in faith are strengthened. All through the preaching of the word of God. This is where the true bread of life is broken. This is where the wine is poured out as the blood of Christ is expressed in the word of God. It is therefore essential that the people of God... Therefore, in light of that importance, it is therefore essential that the people of God pay careful attention to the word being expounded. That includes children. They need to be taught how to sit quietly and listen. Because it is the word preached that has efficacious power to save. Not the sacrament, not the fellowship, not the praying, but the preaching. And so if you want your child to be saved, edified, corrected, encouraged, teach them to hear the Word of God, how to listen. And so the preaching of the Word of God becomes the crowning glory of Jesus Christ. And this is why Jesus cautioned His disciples as to the way they are to hear the Word. Notice in Luke eight eighteen. Notice what he says. Be careful. Watch out. Take heed. Therefore, how you hear. For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and whosoever hath not from him shall be taken even that which he seemeth to have. Be careful how you hear. Therefore, there should be no haphazard hearing of the word of God. 
which means that care should be taken not to be distracted from the hearing of the reading, singing, and especially the preaching of the Word of God. Listening takes concentration. Preaching takes concentration. But listening takes more concentration. You must be an active listener. A deliberate act of focus upon what is being said. This respect for the divine word must be held as sacred by both young and old alike. The Westminster explains it this way. It is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. To reiterate, this means that before we enter into the Lord's house on the Lord's day, we must prepare ourselves and our families to hear the word by praying and exhorting our family members on the importance of the Lord's day worship. The first day of the week is not just another day. Concerning the lackadaisical attitude and the blasphemous attitude of the Lord's day by the seemingly the Lord's people, Isaiah warns them in Isaiah 58. The people here thought that they were doing it all right. Wherefore have we fasted, say they? And thou seest not. Wherefore have we afflicted our soul and now takest no knowledge? Behold, God says, you're doing it all wrong. You're not doing it the way I told you to do it. Is this such a fast that I have chosen? He's speaking of the Sabbath day as the fast. A day for a man to afflict his soul. Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush, to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? What thou called us a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord. But here's what I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness. How are the bands of wickedness loosed? By hearing the word of God. By preaching the word of God. By understanding the word of God. To undo the heavy burdens. When you come to the Lord's day, when you come before the preaching of the Word of God and you come with burdens, and I hope you come here with all of your burdens. Now, someone said to me one time many years ago that they didn't want to attend our church. I said, why not? He said, because everybody's just so holy. Everybody's just so, so much, everybody knows so much doctrine and I don't know anything. I said, my friend, this is the place you used to be. This is the place of hard-boiled sinners. Don't let the people fool you with all of their bloviating. Don't let it deter you from being in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. This is where you bring your heavy burdens. And this is where the, the word of God is unpacked so that your oppression could be relieved and that the yoke might be broken, that the bread of life could be dealt to you who are hungry and thirsty of, for righteousness and that you who are poor and cast out of the way can be redeemed and be brought back to the house of God. You who are naked in your sin, you could be covered with the cloak of his righteousness by the preaching of the word of God. So we ought to pray so that we might enter into the Lord's house fully prepared to hear the word of the Lord. Second, preparation, however, is not sufficient in and of itself. You must come to the worship day with a hearty appetite. I want to repeat that. A hearty appetite. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And the righteousness is expounded by the preaching of the word. A hearty appetite. I'm coming as a starving man to be fed by the word of God as the preacher expounds it so I can understand it and bring it home and, and put a handle on it. But if you are simply showing up because it's your custom or you don't want to have a call from the, the session... You don't want the minister to be upset with you or you feel it's simply your duty or even uh, you show up out of fear that God might be angry and not give you all the 
prayers that you've been asking for and not showing up with a hungering and thirsting after the Word of God, if you don't show up with that hunger and thirsting, and you might as well stay home. I'm deadly serious. If you are not coming here to, to really feast on that Word, stay home. Because if you come here with the wrong motive, you're only bringing damnation on yourself. So you want to check your appetite. Too often we are bogged down by the flesh and we seek excuses not to attend the corporate assembly. We must resist that. Do you think that every every weekend for the last 30 years there wasn't a time when I just wanted to stay home because I had a scratchy throat or I was tired from the night before or the children kept me up and my wife was up? Do you think that I'm not human too? Do you think that ministers have a tough time getting in the pulpit week after week preparing, preparing, preparing? Why? Because they want to unpack life. They want to unpack unpack the life of the scriptures to you. So check your appetite. Because by entering into the Lord's house without a hunger for it, for what it will teach us, is an offense and a hypocrisy to the blessed Savior who himself is the Word made flesh. Thirdly, meditate upon the importance of the preached Word and pray as to how it might affect your day. Meditate how each and every sermon is crafted by God's providence for you and your family and has an earthly as well as an eternal ramification attached to it. I remember so often people would come to me and say, do you have a surveillance system in my house? Because that message was for me. And of course I would say to that individual, no, sorry, sorry brother, it was really for me. Pray how the word of God might affect you. How it might help you in your marriage, in your, in your, in your upbringing of your children, in your, in your life, in your, on your job, in your careers. So we meditate on how each and every sermon is crafted by God's providence, just especially for you. When you come here, the message is for you. God is crafting it through me for you. Fourthly, remember as you enter into the house of God, you are entering into a battlefield since, I know I've said often this is the armory of God, but it's a battlefield. It's a battlefield of distraction. Because there are so many things that distract. For example, your own wandering thoughts. And we live in a day where social media and television, we want to go from one thing to another. We don't have concentration as the Puritans did or as the Reformers did. We can't concentrate longer than a few seconds and then we zone out. Our eyes go glazed over. We, We start to doze off. We start to wander. Because we don't know how to concentrate. So, we have a battlefield. We have to mind our own wandering thoughts. Secondly, you know, I appreciate everyone trying to be a scholar. But when your misplaced zeal goes to look up a Greek word or a Hebrew word or a passage that comes to mind while the pastor is preaching, that takes you away from your concentration as to what the minister is saying and then you miss some of the most important things that the minister has crafted for you, especially perhaps because you're off doing your own Bible study while the minister is ministering his word. Make a mental note of what you wanted to research. Write it down quickly. Get to it later. And then go back to concentrate on God's message to you from the pulpit. Thirdly, your fidgeting children 
the noises they make, the toys they bring into the Lord's house, which of themselves are distracting. That's part of the battlefield. That's part of the problem. Dealing with your children. If you're dealing with your child, you're not hearing what the message is saying. Parents with young children must understand that when their child is distracted, they are distracted to those who are trying to worship and distracted to the minister who is laboring to shepherd his, his sheep. So we got a battlefield. And while the children should worship with the parents within the assembly of the entire congregation, they must be able to sit quietly, which is to be taught at home. Now let's consider some helps. And I am telling you this to help you. I am not telling you this to rebuke you or reprove you in any way, shape, or form. I believe that your heart's all in the right place. And I appreciate that. And I see some great productivity within your families. But here are some practical tactics for your little ones. Number one, bring quiet books. Those board books for the very young ones, coloring books, soft toys. My wife made finger puppets for our little ones to keep them busy. The trick here, however, is for those who are very young, mommy and daddy need to engage them in their quiet toys while listening. You cannot simply give the child a toy, a coloring book or something, expect them to not to get bored in the next 30 seconds. You've got to be there. Sometimes you do tag team. Mommy takes one week, daddy takes the next. Mommy takes the one after, daddy takes the next. For those children that are a bit older, I suggest take a piece of paper and write down all the words that you think will be said during the sermon by the pastor in a vertical list. God, Jesus, Christ, judgment, judge, whatever. Write, write them all down. Then tell your child to make a mark beside each word when they hear the preacher say it. This way they're waiting for those words to be said while they're listening. Then you can even tell them to bring the piece of paper up to the minister after he's finished, say, Pastor, you said the word Jesus 75 times. Or you said judgment, you said hell, you said heaven, and you said this. And they're listening, they're engaged, they're active listeners. Now we've got something going back and forth, sort of like a baseball game. The pitcher doesn't just throw the ball at the catcher. They're interactive. The catcher is just as active as the pitcher. You are the catchers, I am the pitcher. Get them activated. Now for the teens, they should be taking notes so that when they gather around the dinner table that night, they can tell mommy as mommy and daddy examines them what they have learned. Sometimes even a fly on the wall or the events transpiring in the next pew can cause a great disturbance in the Lord's house. Resist that temptation. The wearing of less than appropriate clothing can also be a distraction. Before you leave for God's courtroom, check the mirror and ask, is my attire appropriate? The smell of coffee, even the smell of coffee, or the desire to have coffee while we're trying to concentrate on the Word of God can also serve as a distraction to the self or others. The imaginary visit to the bathroom is also a problem. I can't tell you how many times people get up to go to the bathroom. It's only an hour, an hour and a half, You never see me getting off the pulpit and going to the bathroom. Why is it that we need to go to the bathroom? Look, if you've got to go, go. God bless you. But what's happening? I I know what's happening. I know what's happening. You're bored. You need to take a break because there's not enough entertainment. Well, we are standing on the precipice of eternity. We are standing on the precipice of hell and heaven. And you're bored? 
The imaginary need to visit the bathroom, that is a problem. All of these things pose a threat to our concentration and the concentration of others. And it takes us from the most important hour of our lives, the hour of the hearing of the Word of God expounded. One hour. Can you give Christ one hour of concentration? According to Matthew 13, the parable of the sower describes various types of listeners. The first is the ignorant listener. Those that really don't care much for the Word, but perhaps enjoy the fellowship. The word preached is a sideline. I remember, and I'll tell you, these are all true stories. Somebody came to me once, an older gentleman, came to me in the afternoon, and he's, and uh, I asked him, well, why are you, why are you here? You, you're not, I knew he wasn't a Christian. He said, well, I like, I like the lunch provided, because we used to provide lunch back, back then, which was a mistake. But anyway, he said, I like the lunch provided, and I figured I'd hang around and hear something. Go home. Just go home. I couldn't believe what he was telling me. I'm the minister. The ignorant listener. He really didn't care for the word. He liked the fellowship. Matthew 13, 19. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catches the way that which was sown in his heart. This is he which received the seed by the wayside. The second is the stony-hearted listener. He is the one who hears superficially without concentration, without real attention. But he that receiveth the seed in stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it, yet hath he not root in himself, but endureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. These people easily were impressed by the word, but still resistant to the word and all of its warnings as if it did not apply to him or her. The third one is the half-hearted listener. This listener comes to hear the word, but only to make a fair show as to his or her piety. This is the easily distracted listener. Verse 22, He also that received the seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. Now Ezekiel speaks of this kind of listener. Notice in Ezekiel 33, 30 and following, Also, thou son of man, the children of thy people still are talking against thee by the walls and in the doors of the houses, and speak one to another, every one to his brother, saying, Come, I pray you, and hear what is the word that cometh forth from the Lord. And they come unto thee as thy people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. And lo, Thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear thy words, but they will not do them. And when this cometh to pass, lo, it will come. Then shall they know that a prophet hath been among them. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said once that he was so upset that he was such a flowery speaker because he knew out of the thousand people that came to his tabernacle to hear him preach, he said that they came to hear the poetry, not the message. And he knew that a large percentage of those people were going straight to hell. And it grieved him at his very soul. But then there are those who are the ready hearers of the word. 
the ready hearers of the word of God, those of them who understand the importance of the Lord's day, the gathering of the assembly of the saints, they are the ones who understand the impact that the word of God should have on our very lives and the impact should remain for the whole of the week until the next Sabbath day when they come to be refilled again. But he that receiveth seed in the good ground is he that heareth the word and understands it, which also bears fruit and brings forth fruit. Some in hundred, some sixty, some thirty. That's how you know you heard the word of God. Because there's fruit. James tells us that when we are in attendance to the word of God, we should receive it with meekness in James 1.19 through 21. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. That's how important the preaching of the word is. I hope you're beginning to understand the gravity of the corporate worship of God. How grave it is. How important it is. Consider the end of listening to the preached word. James tells us this. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a mirror. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he, being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Finally, the cry of Reformation, the cry of the European Reformation was Ecclesia Reformata, Sempra Reformanda. In other words, the church reformed is always reforming. We as the church of the living God, the body of Christ, though reformed, we need to always be checking ourselves. We need to always be reforming ourselves, examining ourselves, mending our ways according to the word of God. That takes place on the Lord's day. Because only the minister will tell you what you will not tell yourself. Because when you do your own Bible study, you'll, you'll skip over those hard things. You will not mature properly. Maturation takes place fundamentally through the preaching of the Word of God on the Lord's day, in the Lord's house. And this is why we are commanded to attend the worship assembly on time, rightly prepared, not forgetting or neglecting the assembly of the saints, meditating, ready to receive the word with sincerity, humility, meekness, without distraction, that we may perform that which has been commanded us. I would encourage you to tell your children, when they distract you, you tell them this, son, daughter, I am worshiping God, now quiet yourself, because this is the Lord's house, and this is the Lord's day. May this be our resolution now and forever. And to the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen and Amen.